But Amos 5, verses 1 through 17. God's holy and inspired word from the prophet Amos, chapter 5. Give your attention to the reading of it, God's word. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn, who turn justice into wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted Pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live so that the Lord of hosts may be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. Perhaps it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas, They shall call the farmers to mourning, to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So you pull up to the old majestic church building in order to attend a funeral As you enter those large, ornate oak doors, you can feel the mournful tunes of the organ in your chest. All the guys are suited up in black with veils and big hats. The ladies are covered in lamentation. No eye is dry. You can hear audible weeping. A long line snakes down the side aisle, for it is an open casket. After an hour of moving inch by inch, you finally reach that glossy coffin in the sea of flowers. 
You step up to look inside, and as you look down, you see yourself. Yes, this is your funeral. Your body is laying in that gussied up in that box. Talk about a shock. You start pinching yourself to wake up from this horrid nightmare. What could be a worse dream? And yet, this is what the Lord does to his people. Yet through the preaching of Amos, the Lord brings Israel to their own wake. And even if we find this a touch morbid, the Lord does it to direct us to the only path to life with him. So Amos is back with a word from the Lord, and this time the Lord addresses his people. He's feeling musical. He has a song for them. He's going to serenade them. And he has a very particular type of song, as it is a lamentation or a funeral dirge. This is the genre of song that you sing at a funeral to honor and mourn the dead. This was the same musical number that David sang when his best best friend Jonathan and his dad Saul died in battle. Thus the Lord invites the people to a funeral to sing for them a sad, sad song. Fallen, no more to rise, forsaken on her land with none to raise her. What a horrible way to go. This person is helpless and without any helper. She has fallen on the battlefield and slowly bleeding out from her wounds. But no one can hear her cries for help and she's too weak to crawl for aid. But then the Lord drops the name of the victim, Maiden Israel. It was Lady Israel who was pa- who was powerless and shattered, helpless and alone to perish. The Lord has brought Israel to her own funeral. She gets to hear the Lord keening over her corpse. As a window into the future, Israel then becomes a spectator of her own death and funeral while she's yet alive. And the manner of her death only gets worse. For she didn't pass peacefully in the night, but she was massacred in battle. The note, it says that the city charged out a thousand strong, but it returned with a mere hundred soldiers. Then the city made a second assault with its hundred and came back with a measly ten. Yes, this is not two cities of different sides fighting one battle, but it's the same city fighting in two battles, which means the total of losses equal 99%. Ten men remaining out of a 1,000 is 1% left. Such is obliteration in battle. This scanty residue is meaningless for the survival of the nation. Thus, the whole nation is dead and buried. Yet why? Why let Israel hear her own funeral song? Isn't this a touch cruel, torment by nightmare? Well, like Ebenezer Scrooge, who saw the future in order to reform the present, so also for Israel. Thus, after hitting his last musical note, the Lord calls out, Seek me and live. Your funeral is fast approaching, but if you want to live, if you hope to change your fate, then seek Yahweh. Now, seeking the Lord involves turning 
with your whole heart towards him in humility, confession, and renewed devotion. It is to cry out in prayer as one who is helpless to him who is your only help, helper, powerful and gracious. It's to run to God as our refuge and strength for pardon in life. And yet in the Old Testament, this heartful seeking of the Lord was connected to a place. You had to seek the Lord where God had made himself known, particularly in the temple, at that one chosen place of Yahweh's name on earth. In fact, seek the Lord can be a synonym for worshiping the Lord in purity in the temple. Hence, the Lord now or next lists off places where Israel cannot seek the Lord. Don't seek at Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal or trek over to Beersheba. Of course, the Lord's main interest here is with Bethel, as it was the official shrine of the northern kingdom. Indeed, as he says, Bethel will come to nothing. It will burn with none to quench it. The Lord then once again denounces their apostate worship. For their worship at Bethel wasn't exactly idolatry in the full sense of it, we might say. For they did actually worship the Lord at Bethel and not some other god. Though, as you may remember, nearly 200 years before the time of Amos, King Jeroboam I of Israel built the shrine at Bethel so that people would not go to Jerusalem. Also, Jeroboam fashioned a golden calf for the people to venerate after the model of Aaron's calf back in Exodus 32. Therefore, even though they call in the name of the Lord at Bethel, their worship was apostate through and through. It violated the law, and it profaned the holy name of the Lord. Thus, seeking the Lord at Bethel is no good, is just more hypocrisy and apostasy. Rather, if they want to live, if they desire to change their funeral, they must seek Yahweh in sincerity with a whole heart, and they have to go to Jerusalem. Yet with this double call to seek him, the Lord doesn't seem very optimistic that his people will make the turn. For now, he continues to drop condemnations upon their sins. Verse 7, he says, You turn justice into wormwood, you cast the righteous, or righteousness, to the ground. Again, the Lord arraigns them for their civil unrighteousness, that is, the evils they commit against their fellow covenant members. And this is a pretty vivid image here. For as you know, especially under the law, justice has the purpose to sweeten life. It's supposed to make peace. For justice particularly steps in when there's been a crime. Some criminal soured life by hurting or damaging another image bearer of God. And so justice comes to the rescue to punish the sinner, to pay restitution to the victim, and to restore balance. The honey of justice cures the sting of crime. But not so in Israel, for they have transformed justice into wormwood. And wormwood is that face-flinching and gut-wrenching bitterness of absinthe. Sour and pungent justice 
amplifies the harm of lawbreaking and it provides no relief to the abused. Vinegar justice deals in lies and falsehoods rather than the truth. Likewise, it humiliates the righteous down into the dirt. In proper justice, the righteous are those who stand in their innocence and are so approbated. Felons are supposed to bow their head to the ground in shame, but the innocent can hold their heads high. But not in Israel's ascetic justice. They beat the head of the innocent down in shame, and they promote criminals as social celebrities. In this way, the innocent, the Israelites are social transformers, for they have morphed the truth of justice and righteousness into the lie of wickedness and crime. And yet, it's not only the Israelites that are good at flipping things on their head. Thus, after this verse about the perversion of justice, the Lord adds a hymn. Amos breaks forth into song in verses 8 to 9. He offers up a doxology on the amazing creative power of Yahweh as the almighty creator and the Lord of nature. For the Lord made those beautiful constellations of Pleiades and Orion. Now, in the ancient world, stars were often venerated as gods and goddesses. Today, we marvel at the millions of light years that separate us, small humans, from such massive uh, lights. And yet, for the Lord, stars and constellations are merely his fingerwork. He breathed them into being and scattered them across the heavens like glitter on a paper. Moreover, the Lord is the great transformer and governor of change. Note, he regulates darkness so that it becomes morning, and then he puts to bed the day into night. Yahweh also draws up the great waters of the sea as if in a cup and doses the dry land. He makes the wet dry and the dry wet. And just so the Israel does not forget it, Yahweh is his name. His name is the Lord. You can practically hear the trumpets and trombones, the drums and the woodwinds praising the splendor of Yahweh as the Lord of all nature. And yet at the height of this crescendo, as soon as Yahweh names his name, the hymn drops a punchline. He makes destruction come on the strong and calamity on the fortress. This king of creation is also the judge of his people. He can level the fortified strongholds of Israel that they take so much confidence in. Surely they thought to themselves, they are safe in their castles and stone towers but not from the Lord. He can squish their fortifications as if a fly with his thumb. Thus, after his flexing of majesty, the Lord now returns to the crimes of his people. He picks up in verse 10 with a point he made in verse 7. Here he gives, though, more concrete examples of how they make justice bitter. First, he says that they hate the arbiter in the gate, And they abhor the one who speaks the truth. 
Now, the arbiter is the guy or the person, the role, who represents and helps others get justice. Furthermore, truthful testimony is the essential ingredient in uprightness. Truth and advocacy are the lifeblood of justice. But the people, they hate such things. They abhor the people that practice them. Then, on top of this, they trample the poor and they tax their grain. Now, we are unsure about the meaning of the text here. This could be condemning overtaxation of the poor. And yet the word might not refer to taxes at all and just refer to seizing their grain. Either way, grain is the basic staple of life, particularly for the impoverished. To steal or overtax a necessity of life is to threaten their life. This is robbery spilling over into murder. Thus, they use the courts to rob and steal from the vulnerable, and then they turn around with their ill-gotten gains to construct fancy houses for themselves. Finally, the Lord condemns the people for being enemies of the righteous, verse 12. That is, the Israelites do not merely dislike the righteous. They do not just ignore them or shun them, but they engage in outright war against them as enemies. Note, they take bribes against them so that justice goes to the highest bidder. Money runs their courts, and not the truth. Thus, the needy are shoved aside before they can even reach the gate where the courts are found. You have to pay even for admission into the halls of justice. The poor, then, are priced out of justice. Money talks, and so without coin, you have no voice. Indeed, what is said next, or in the next verse, is quite interesting. Verse 13, it says, Therefore, the prudent keep silent, for it is an evil time. Now, this line rubs us the wrong way. With all the evil around, the wise person stays silent? This surely cannot be right or wise. In our modern day, silence is judged mostly nowadays completely as a negative. When there's an injustice, you can't be quiet, but you have to speak up, call it out, declare truth to power. Isn't this what Amos is doing himself? But this shows us how different our day is from Scripture and how we cannot impose our preferences upon the text. Indeed, just because Amos is denouncing injustice in the courts doesn't mean that we can cut and paste him into our modern movements for so-called social justice, whatever's meant by that term today. For sure, there is equity here. We should be a people who are devoted to truth and fairness. We should not rob and steal, especially if we can get away with it. Yet we live in a secular country as a pilgrim people. While Amos is ministering to the theocratic state of Israel, the visible church at the time. Moreover, scriptural wisdom is realistic and prudent. 
That is, there are times when evil is so pervasive that it's prudent to keep quiet. Sure, wisdom is devoted to the truth, and it will not compromise, but it is also practical. When change is impossible, when there are no advocates, no rights left for you to appeal to, then silence is wise. Such silence is not weakness or compromise, but rather it's its own form of protest. In rampant evil times, prudent silence is refusing to cast pearls before swine. It declines to participate in a system so corrupt that you cannot touch it without being infected. Wise silence, then, is a testimony against the rotten wickedness of the state of Israel. It's the few upright and prudent Israelites left who stay at arm's length from it all. And yet where it is wise for private people to keep their heads down, Amos is a public persona. He's been chosen and sent by God as a prophet to call the whole people to repentance in the hope of averting justice. He prosecutes the covenant as testimony against their sins and rebellions. Therefore, Amos utters one more call to seek the Lord. And not only to seek the Lord in repentant worship, but to seek the Lord by doing new obedience. So he says, seek good and not evil. Hate evil and love the good. Now, under the law, it was the people, by doing the law obediently, that they earned long life in the land with the Lord. Thus, the repentance of the people requires reforming their hearts, their worship, and their lives. Remember, hypocrisy is a major problem for the people. Even if their worship was apostate, they were ever faithful to worship at Bethel. By their outward religious, but their outward religious devotion was combined with fragrant lives of crime and wickedness. Repentance and life then demanded new faith and worship and renewed lives of keeping the law, obedience, and righteousness. Nevertheless, these calls to seek the Lord are tempered with an unsure hope. In verse 14, it literally says, Seek good so that maybe the Lord will be with you. In verse 15, it says, Love good and perhaps the Lord will be gracious to you. Perhaps? Seek and perhaps you will find grace? This isn't very encouraging. What's this about? Well, it fires on two levels. First, one of Israel's problems was a magical approach to worship. That is, you bring your offering, you give your sacrifice, and poof, God will bless you. For them, God was their heavenly vending machine. As long as they deposited their gifts, the Lord was obliged to deliver Thus, this perhaps discloses the Lord's sovereignty and freedom. The Lord is not bound to their repentance. If he grants mercy, it's by his own free choice. Secondly, this perhaps reveals how unlikely it is that Israel will seek God in repentance. 
The Lord knows his people are recalcitrant, that they're dug in and they're not moving. Their seeking God isn't going to happen, which is why God returns to their funeral in verses 16 and 17. The Lord returns to where he opened, at a wake with mourning everywhere. There's crying in the streets, weeping in the squares, keening and lamentation rise from the vineyards. City folk and farmhands are wailing together. Professional mourners and average people cry in harmony. Indeed, a great wailing rises up throughout the land, for as Yahweh says at the end of verse 17, I will pass through the land. This is a reference and echo to the book of Exodus and the tenth plague of of the death of the firstborn when the destroyer passed through the land. Thus, as in Egypt of old, the Lord as destroyer is passing through Israel and there will be a great lamentation. The Lord has offered his people to seek him for life, but we are left only with tears at a funeral, which means they did not seek and they died. Amos preached for repentance, but their refusal to repent was not a failure for Amos. For he also preached to vindicate God's justice against sinners. He prosecuted the covenant against those who broke it. For remember, God can be glorified in two ways. He can pour out grace to save, or he can unleash wrath to judge. So then in the face of Israel's profane worship and bitter unrighteousness, the Lord shows his name to be holy by death and a funeral. And in this way, we see how the new covenant far exceeds the old covenant. For Amos calls Israel to seek the Lord By the law. True, mercy was offered, but they had to fulfill the law in obedience before life and pardon flowed. Their performance of justice and righteousness was the requisite for life. Hence, the perhaps. They had to do all the new obedience before the Lord would show them grace. But in the new covenant, the word calls us to seek God In Jesus Christ, the law demands that you must have your life all put together first. But Jesus tells us, come as we are, broken and miserable sinners. The law seeks righteousness, but Jesus came to seek the sick and the sinners. In mercy, Jesus tells us in the gospel, I know you're wretched and bankrupt. You have nothing to offer. You bring not a thing. Instead, you are without merit and deserve eternal judgment. But that is why Jesus came to provide us what we could never provide for ourselves. As those broken, powerless, helpless, and dead, Jesus came to save exactly us. Indeed, Jesus does not bring us to a funeral. Rather, us already being dead, Jesus brings us to to new life, the power of his resurrection. 
Indeed, part of the wonder of the gospel is that we hear that Jesus came first to seek us. Before we seek him, he sought us out as those who were lost. We were without God and without hope in the world, and the arms of Christ reached out and took hold of us. Sure, the gospel, the gospel calls us to repent and believe. Then, after we believe in Jesus, we come to realize that he first made us alive by his spirit. We choose Jesus only to understand that he first chose us. As the good shepherd, Jesus calls our name, and only then does the spirit help us to recognize his voice. Thus, in the gospel of Christ, there is no perhaps. The grace of Christ is more sure. It is reliable, trustworthy, even as Paul says, all the promises are yes and amen in Christ. For the gospel demands nothing of us other than to realize that we are bankrupt and already dead in sin. Saving faith is casting ourselves upon Jesus and resting in him alone. In the good news of Christ, we hear, repent, believe, and be saved. In Christ's free offer of the gospel, there are no maybes, no ifs, and no perhaps. Instead, we hear that the Father is faithful and just to forgive us when we confess. We hear that we have an advocate with the Lord, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for all our sins. Yes, Jesus supplied what we could never, his blood and righteousness, our everlasting pardon and inheritance of heaven. Thus, in the gospel, Jesus says to us, come to me, all who labor, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the greater grace of Jesus that never fails towards you. In humble faith, then, may we ever rest and hide ourselves in Christ. For there is no other salvation and no other hope than in Christ alone. And then, having been raised to new life and to live by grace... Christ does call us to walk in obedience and uprightness. Justice and righteousness ought to be the path of our life, flowing from Christ's redemption of us. For Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Thus, by his truth, we are set free from judgment and sin. And by his truth, we are sanctified. Remember here, Israel hated the truth just as so many parts of our world still hate the truth. But we ought to be those who love the truth, who live and walk in the truth. For we worship in spirit and in truth. We are trained by the truth of Scripture, and we love each other and our neighbors in the truth. Sure, the truth isn't always easy, It takes much patience and labor to tease it out at times. But we are the people of the truth, just as Christ's truth 
has taken hold of us. Therefore, filled with the saving grace of Christ, may we live according to the truth of Christ in every area and arena of life. And then, in the truth, we will be conformed to Christ and we will live, speak, and love for the glory of our wonderful God, the creator of all, the Lord of nature, and our perfect Savior. Amen. Let us pray.